Hello everybody and welcome to today's episode of Activist Lawyer. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Kieran Mulholland in the studio today in Uri. Welcome Kieran. Oh, thank you, thanks for having me Sarah. Drove up from, where did you come from Dundalk today or were you, you were away? I, I drove up from, no, I came across, I was oh, working yes, in Ennis, Sligo yesterday, right. so I've came hmm. across from the west of Ireland and up from Dundalk this morning. Well, you're very good, very good for making that effort and joining us today. Um, just by way of introduction, Kieran is Principal Solicitor at Mulholland Law in Dundalk and uh, Dublin. You've offices in both Dundalk and Dublin. Um, and it is a boutique Irish law firm specialising in criminal defence, civil litigation and extradition law. And just a little bit um, of background, Kieran is one of the few Irish lawyers to hold membership of the prestigious European Criminal Bar Association and the European Fraud and Compliance Lawyers. Kieran has represented clients before the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg and the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, which ultimately contributed to his nomination for Criminal Lawyer of the Year at the annual Irish Law Awards. More recently, he was the winner of the Lawyer Monthly Legal Awards 2022 in the category of Human Rights Ireland. Kieran read law with Irish at McGee College of the Ulster University, that's in Derry, right? It is, yes. And obtained a Master's of Laws from <coughs> Queen's University, Belfast, focusing on human rights and criminal justice. Kieran is an Irish language advocate and a GAA massive super fan, like I would say. So, massive GAA <laughs> super fan, not so much a massive GAA player these days. Now, which team's that? Which team? I try, I, I, um, Not I that I can tell I've from your more, attire. More, more clubs than Dodi Delphiad <laughs> these days. Um, I've, I've done the rounds with clubs with moving around the place. Mm. Um, but I have been roped in to play in a bit of Reserve Hurling. Reserve Hurling? Reserve mm. Hurling. Um, and it's it's a cross between Gladiators and <laughs> Cena, the Warrior Princess. Wow. Um, so it's, um, thank God you have to wear your helmet now. Because hmm. no, yeah. I don't think I'd be getting in the court with many teeth. <laughs> well, what a good way to release your frustration oh, from. Well, <laughs> there certainly has to be balance, um, <laughs> given the some of some of the uh, the tension that is built up during the course oh, of the, the work. I'm sure. Well, I'm delighted to have you here, and really keen to get through some of your work. You're going to share a little bit of your work with us and with our listeners. Um, but just going back in time a little bit, where did it all begin? Why did you get into law in the first place? What led you down that path? <laughs> I was just—I was only thinking about that last night um, when you sent the email, and I suppose it all—it really does all go back to when I was a child. You no, know, I attended the Bond School in West Belfast, Bond School Football First Year. Um, it was great school, great teachers, and a great sense of community. Um, but being in the area that I was from, you know, discrimination was prevalent in your mm-hmm. everyday life. Not that you would have been live to it yeah. at such a young age, but it was there. You knew it was there. And I, I vividly remember even the evenings and the parents with teletext on and the, the radios on in the background and the news. And what, what attracted me uh, to law was these images of courts. Right. And you could see the cartoons and people talking about relatives or because people were always glued yeah. to the TV. You no, know, it could be you know, a relative in court or it was it was a neighbour. Um, and you were always hearing these stories of wrongs and people falling foul of the law. Um, and like I, I always had an opinion, mm-hmm. uh, and I always had a voice, and maybe used it a little more than others. Um, so I was drawn. I was, I was certainly drawn to law, and I was drawn yeah. to advocacy. Um, I would have been involved in debate societies through school, um, and it was always something that was very much encouraged by by teachers. I was very lucky with 
the schools that I attended and teachers were you no know, credit when credit's due. Um, they they had a, an instrumental impact upon me in, in terms of the encouragement. So from a young age, I was very I was very much uh, headstrong in terms of following a career in law. And look, it was a career that it certainly wouldn't have been anyone else in my family would yeah. have been um, lawyers or um, at that side of the sure. courtroom. Like the, 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 they certainly <laughs> had their own experiences in courts, but um, not in terms of professionals. Um, so yeah, I, um, it's, a, it's a career that I enjoy and yeah. it's a career that I'm, I'm very passionate about. Very good. And you've gone between, I suppose you're dual qualified, um, so you can practice anywhere on the island of Ireland. And you've gone between the two in terms of your work experience. I don't recognise Brexit. I go up and down the road. I don't recognise Brexit either. But um, yeah, so um, feeling Brexit and putting Brexit to one side, um, (laughs) you decided to go into, it was criminal law, it was criminal justice, you know, the the area that you wanted to get into, or how did you get into kind of, I suppose, the human rights aspect of, of law? So the human rights always interested me mm. um, and, and it's because it was the, you could personally relate to it mm-hmm. um, I, I I studied law as I, said, I read law with, with Irish language at McGee College in Derry City at a time uh, in which you know, you had tribunals were being heard hearings were being heard in respect to Bloody Sunday yeah. um, so it was all exciting, it was all new um, there was certain cases that were coming through that you can recall and it, were, it was always in the news and it was interesting, mm. um, which made the studies then interesting. And But my first job in, in law was actually voluntary work for a law centre in Derry doing employment cases. Right. Um, and I, I then gravitated uh, towards criminal law uh, and ended up in a, in a human rights firm in, in Belfast. Um, and it, I think it was because of the evolution of of the laws and how you could impact the law in general yeah. through through case law, um, and I, I thoroughly I, I did like and I still do I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And then so I suppose um, you went on to you practiced and um, worked with a few law firms in the north. And when did you decide to veer south? I guess and what led you to practice? Yeah, the, yeah that was that was interesting. I suppose. Um, there's, there's lots of, crim- because of the legacy of the past mm. in the North, there's lots of criminal defence firms and there's some excellent lawyers in those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't wake up one day and say, well, look, I, I'm going to go to Dublin. Yeah. I want to work in Dublin. Um, I was I was looking elsewhere. No, mm-hmm. I, I was, at one stage, I was out you know, hoping to secure employment in a firm in New York mm-hmm. and other things changed that course and it was back in Ireland and I was approached by a firm in Dublin and they 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 made an offer of uh, a position down in Dublin, and I I, I didn't think of Dublin. Mm. Uh, and then when I take a step back and I was speaking with other colleagues, one thing that stuck out to me was look in Dublin in the in the south they don't have the equivalent of the Police and Criminal Evidence yeah. Act or the Criminal Evidence Order in, as it is in the north. Uh, so in terms of the right to legal representation, the role of a solicitor. This is all new territory. Sure. Um, and solicitors were only permitted to attend interviews at that particular time. Right. So um, I, I, I viewed it as a, look, it's a new adventure yeah. and it's exciting and it went mm-hmm. down and it, look, I jumped in with, with both legs and I haven't looked back since. Mm-hmm. And look, some of the interviews, like I must say, no, I, I could have been in, say, the week or two beforehand, you're in a police station in the north and you're dealing with a theft, yeah. a bog standard theft, and then the fall, fast forward a couple of weeks and you were in the thick of it in Dublin. Um, no, and it was, mm. like, don't get me wrong, it was very exciting, but 
No, it was frightening as well. No, yeah. it was. It was some some of the cases. It was like an episode of love hate. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it really was, and people and were thinking. Thinning. And people were thinking, "Oh, you, you practice in the north. You've saw it all." And going, oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, no, it couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. God, what a different experience, and it's so interesting to get the two perspectives. And you've had real insight there, but you have been involved in advocating for change or witnessing change, I suppose, as you say, when you entered into you know the, the area of practice in, in criminal law. Um, you were one of the first Irish solicitors to participate in. I hope. I hope. I'm saying this right, the Supralat project. So that was dealing with, is it strengthening um, suspects' rights in Garda interviews? Yeah, that, that, that was an excellent project. Mm. Uh, that was spearheaded by uh, the late Ficky Conway. Oh, right, and, yes. Um, and look, it was it was just a breath of fresh air. There was academics from DCU, um, uh, Avon being one of them as well, and they clearly knew mm. things were wrong. It had to change. the The south of Ireland was just out of kilter with the rest of Europe, and this project was brought together. Now there was other, um, there was other involvement through Maastricht University and that as well, but it was because of the absence of of legislation mm. uh, akin to pace, which would like establish this is the role of a criminal defence solicitor, this is the role of a member of a Gardaíshire corner, they're investigator, this is the role of a prosecutor, they they present the case, yeah. but it goes right to the core of how, from the from the moment of arrest, how that person or that individual accused is brought through the brought through the system, yeah. um, and it was not only to educate but to give solicitors and practicing solicitors the confidence to deal with that, mm-hmm. because well, ultimately what happened in the south. Overnight, after the Doyle case and the White and Gormley case in the Supreme Court and that judgment of Adrian Hardiman, the late Adrian Hardiman, um, solicitors were permitted access to guard interviews. No, so the solicitors mm-hmm. were, oh, now you can come into interviews. But right, okay. Okay, so what training was in place? There, there was mm-hmm. no training. Um, there was no training. So there was practitioners that are 20, 30 years experience, great advocates in court, um, but had never actually been in the guard interview room. Mm. No, the head of their advice would be to call up, I suppose, like a welfare check. Yeah. Um, and the the, 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 the run-of-the-mill advice was, look, exercise yeah. your constitutional right to silence. So it, it has dramatically changed how good, interviews yeah. are carried out Huge. in the South. Mm. But that, as, again, look, that was a... That was a brilliant. It was a brilliant, brilliant course, yeah. and look, I was very privileged to participate in that. That's brilliant. And are you still tutoring? I know you were tutoring with the law society. Is <coughs> that still something you're? Um, the the tutoring with the law society. So I was assisting with the the criminal litigation course. Okay. And I, I, I that was great crack. Yeah. No, it really was. I I really enjoyed that because you're mm. sitting down with other practitioners and. Mm. Uh, aspiring practitioners and like, they want to hear the juicy stories and that and, <laughs> and some of them are coming from corporate law firms and, and they're no, mm. they're very rigid in what they're doing mm-hmm. and they're hearing about this really exciting law yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you tell them what the salaries are and the, <laughs> and the face, like, the face uh, yeah. is just dropped. <laughs> See you later. Um, you're saying look at this, this really is a vocation mm. um, and if it's a vocation, maybe it was a vocation now, maybe it's just insanity now. With, uh, mm. It was a vocation then, it's insanity now with the, le- with the legal aid cuts. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, We'll but, get to um, that. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, but it was, it was I, I didn't do the classes last year, and it was just mm. really because how time consuming they sure, are. Because yeah. it's not something that you it's can just It's a big commitment. Up. No, absolutely. No, you have, to, look, you have to be up to scratch. You have to prepare for the classes. And when you are a sole practitioner, yeah. um, no, your diary changes You're so much. You're pulled every which yeah, way as no, well. I and mean, arrests can come in, cases yeah. can, can mm. uh, 
can come out of nowhere and can be adjourned or can be listed. So, like, unfortunately, I didn't do it last year. It's something that I would really be hoping yeah. to, to come back to because yeah. I, I get, look, I'd, I'd say I probably get more out of it than what the, the students well, get I'm out sure of it. I'm sure you're really a great asset it. as well to them, just getting your insight and your experience. I mean, we've had a little word about some of your cases. Um, what, what does your desk look like at the moment, as they say? <laughs> Is there anything you can share with us in terms of just your work, any cases that might um, stand out? My God. You must know my desk is uh, very neat and tidy. It, it is actually yeah. very neat and tidy. Yeah, um, and if any of my staff are listening to this, they, they'll be, they'll certainly confirm that I have mm. to have a tidy desk policy, or I'll go mad. Okay. Um, but some of the cases that I have ongoing at the minute are, are some really interesting cases. Um, uh, one of which is listed next week, so that's a case again, and I've had a couple of cases, um, extradition cases that have. I've had the fortune of going mm. to to the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg on, and this, and this is another one that, look, it may go there. I don't know. It's certainly before the Supreme Court at the minute, and it's focusing on the, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Okay. So that 11-hour nightmare yeah. agreement that Boris um, was able to mastermind across the line, um, that, that agreement has led to further challenges, and this is another challenge where the, the respondent, um, it's been sought by authorities in the north, emanating from a prosecution, and the the argument would be like this is a this is a prosecution that was instigated by uh, the British intelligence services right. through a double agent. Uh, but that I suppose that's an, more of an issue for the the defence in due course. Um, but it's if there was to be a conviction and a sentence, the ramifications of licensing mm-hmm. and those those licenses for citizens that do not actually reside or domicile at north of the border. I see. Right, um, okay. And is that compatible with Bonriot and the Heron? Is it compatible ah. with the European Convention on Human Rights? So, it, it, look, it's an interesting case. Very interesting. Um, yeah. And, it look, it will have, well, either way, before the judgment, it's, ha- it's had implications mm-hmm. in terms of ongoing extraditions uh, mm-hmm. from EU member states to uh, the UK. Okay. Wow, one to watch, definitely. So that's, we'll probably have this out after that, but that's early October. That's that's in for here in a two-day mm. here in an early October. Yeah. Very good, okay. So things are starting to speed up quite mm. quite rapidly, and there's a lot of cases in um, now. Uh, one in particular is a retrial. I, I suppose it would be inappropriate to elaborate any further okay. on it because it is it is a retrial and it is coming up. Um, but it's, um, there is, like there, there's, there's a lot of criminal cases coming up at the minute, and I suppose I'm sitting counting them down in the head here. <laughs> and the the reason I'm doing that is it's <laughs> and it all comes back to the first week of term and the strike. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and the and third. We, yeah, mm. and we just don't know what way things That's are going right, to go. Yeah, that'll impact. No, so cases are listed, mm. practitioners are prepared for it, and we don't know, we don't know what way yeah. things are going to go. It, it gets most unfortunate yeah. <coughs> that it has come to yeah, yeah, the withdrawal of services. But I think you were. There's no other options at the moment. From Look, what this I is this is a like it's it really is the last yeah. um, decision that the people were were mm. wanting to go down this route. Like the last thing that any criminal defence practitioner wants to do is to stand out the, outside the doors of court yeah. and not carry out their 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 duties and their functions mm-hmm. uh, for 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 their clients. Like Absolutely. nobody nobody wants that. No. Um, Nobody wants it, but unfortunately, um, and I can only speak for my for my own experience here um, as a solicitor. Like I'm not at the bar. The bar have 
and, and rightfully the bar have taken the decision to withdraw services. So just for listeners, this is in respect of the criminal legal aid scheme? Yeah, so so unlike unlike the uh, the North, uh, in the South, you have the criminal legal aid scheme, mm-hmm. which would be for the district courts and the superior courts. Mm-hmm. You would then have the legal aid custody issue scheme, which would deal with ad hoc matters. And okay. that, uh, that again has all its own flaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not subject to the strike. Um, the the strike, as people have been calling it, I've uh, been referring to this withdrawal of services, but the industrial action that is that yes. is due to, that is due to take place on the third of October, um, like it, it initially started out, um, as a result of junior barristers spearheading a campaign, because of the lack of reasonable remuneration. Yeah. Um, and you're talking uh, when you when you're looking at the fees, no, a fee would come in. And you're talking in around fifty euros for an appearance. Um, and for someone like me who's a sole practitioner, yeah. no, I rely on the goodwill of yeah. junior barristers, and you'd be splitting that fee. Mm. But like I have, I have fees outstanding for three years, so I can't pay it. He can't pay the barrister, and it's just like oh, it's a, like a, a common sense approach in terms of this day and age. Yeah. You're supposed to have the, and I, I, pur- I think it's purposeful. It's purposely intentional obstruction, where. When a case finishes, I have to fill in a paper form and send it to the individual registrar. Yeah. That registrar has to tick it off, whether it's correct or not, and then that registrar sends it to uh, Killarney, which is, mm. at the, which is a section of the Department of Justice, and then payment, in theory, should proceed. And it's but, but it, no, but sure, such it a nightmare. No, I, I carried out a review in our own office and there was substantial money outstanding yeah. over the course of three years. And you have been engaging with the department over this. And I know we had Darren Lawler, who is um, one of the, the barristers who have been very active around this issue um, from the barristers' perspectives on, and it's still ongoing. So this isn't the first strike action. This is No, no it's it's not the first strike action. And even well before the mm. strike action, it's not as if this just came, like, came as a bolt out of the blue. Yeah, it's been no, ongoing. this goes right back to... The, no, the the Celtic Tiger days yeah. and the slashing of legal aid mm-hmm. um, and I suppose lawyers refused us for a game back then and, and legal aid was substantially cut Yeah, that's um, right. so when you weigh up those cuts coupled with the, the rising costs um, and where we are today so the, the legal aid as it is at present is over 20 years old those mm-hmm. fees are based yeah. on figures 20 years ago and um, and then they've been sliced by what the guts of 40, 50 percent. Um, so it's it's outrageous. Unbelievable. No, like, no it I, is. I know. And one thing's for sure: you can bet, you can bet your bottom dollar that those officials in the Department of Justice are not sitting on twenty-year-old fees that have been sliced by fifty percent. No. But it just seems to be fair game for solicitors. That solicitors are, and it's much more. Take, take the yeah. take the practitioners out of it. No, in the criminal courts, you have some of the most vulnerable and marginalised people that comes before the mm-hmm. courts. Some of them may have addiction issues, some of them may have mental health issues, and we're the cold face of, yeah. the, of, of the people who engage with those to ensure we extract the best instructions mm-hmm. and to ensure that their best interests are protected. And we are expected to do that for absolute pittance. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, and I think that gives an insight of governments think of citizens of the state. So it's, it's much better it is, than just... It's a bigger it, picture. It, it, it is, and it can't be, it can't be sort of... Pigeonholed. Uh, the, these are these are barsters out for yep. um, no trying to get ac- more money. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they're all 
they're all fat cat lawyers and it's it's far from it it couldn't it be is. anything farther from mm-hmm. the truth um and it's it's much more than just the district courts the district courts put it in the context in terms of the the minuscule amounts that are expected to be paid like my issue is and i have i've made numerous representations to the department of justice which have all been ignored and i i, I end up having the right to the minister who was too busy to meet and um said that the the, depart- the department will get back to my correspondence that was a month or two ago i'm still waiting on a reply yeah. but <coughs> even those horrendous fees they're still not being paid when you put in, when you put in your bills <laughs> so, you're not even so that's, that's, that's the <laughs> oh issue and, and so a, there's a huge impact there yeah, across it's, it's the board i mean not you as the you department said. of justice mm. you can't get speaking to anyone you mm. email them you'd be mm. lucky to get a response um and in terms of the superior court cases then so like that that case that we were touching on mm. that I would rather rather not name um that's a substantial case involving mm. millions and I, I mean an excess of eight million documents yeah to include financial documents extradition documents um and that's just the prosecution papers then you have the defense papers so yeah. papers that we may have sought by way of subject access requests and clients instructions and that's in excess of two two million. So we're roughly ten million pages, and that's split between the legal team. And we're p- trying to prepare for a trial. Um, and it's bad when you have to write off continuously to the department. Are we going to be paid, paid for the preparation of this case? Because at the back of your head is, look, there's a there's an accused person, there's an accused person that you no, know, they want their case mm-hmm. to be prepared for and adequately prepared for, and rightly so. And there's the ripple effect of him preparing for his case and his family and whatnot. Um, and you get a response back going, look, they've had previous representation or pre- other lawyers have been paid for this some years ago. So why ago. should you get paid again? Um, so why should you get paid? For your time. And, uh, sure, if it's relevant. And it, it was as bold as this. If it's relevant, sure, your client can refuse and tell you what is relevant. Wow. No, so asking what the accused... Kind of a asking the accused to carry out a refuse of disclosure... And to come back to senior and junior counsel and solicitor and go, I think this is relevant. Yeah. This is an issue that has been arising and it's just been, it's been getting worse year on end. Uh, right, yeah. And it's, it's, it's not just this government, it's successive governments. It's, it's happened over on. different generations yeah. and it needs to come to an end if we really value our criminal justice system. No, we're talking about Ireland being one of the worst countries in Europe when it comes mm. to legal aid assistance. It's awful. Well, like if you go back to the start of the, the podcast, you were asking, mm. look, um, what, what, why did you want to get into law? And I was saying about, like, I was used to see these diagrams and cartoons, and I, I was intrigued by this, and no, oh, I wanted yeah. to speak out for people that have fallen foul of of the law that was there to protect mm. them. I, when I started out, I was gravitating towards becoming a barrister. No, but the fact is. I wouldn't be from an affluent background. Yeah. No, for a barrister to start out um, self-employed, no, th- this this sort of key skills that certainly the institute didn't teach me when I was there uh, and at Queens, mm. and I don't believe the Blackhall nor um, Kings Inns teach practitioners how to operate a business successfully as and um, being self-employed. Yeah. No, they'll teach you how to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So these are things that you have to pick up as you go along, and unless you have that safety net of the bank of mummy and daddy to fall back on yeah. then no there's all these economic barriers and that's sure. just society as it is at the minute but yeah. that coupled with the fact that you could be you could be a highly successful in terms of busy junior barrister but the reality is you, you may not get paid for any of that yeah. work it's a it's really abysmal at this stage well the campaign's been ongoing for a while and um we certainly will follow it on activist lawyer it's the third of october 
is um, a withdrawal of services and it you're is. involved yeah. in that. Yeah, well, well, we'll certainly not be participating mm-hmm. in any cases involving the criminal legal aid scheme on that day. Okay. But my, um, from my perspective, and the, the bigger issues with the criminal justice system, it is not just criminal legal aid. Mm-hmm. No parole board hearings. Parole boards are a new thing in the south of Ireland. It's now been put, those hearings are now on a statutory set, and there is there's minimal legal aid in place, yeah. but it doesn't cover the consultations, mm-hmm. the prepar- the preparatory works, um, and it doesn't even cover travel. So I've had these these issues with the 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 parole board where they were expecting me to travel, no two hours down the road to do a hearing that may have gone into a second day. Yeah. Um, and maybe rather naively I asked and it was only because I did one previously and I wasn't paid mm-hmm. I asked can you just confirm that we'll be paid yeah. um, and the, look, and I just should say the going legal aid rate for mm. solicitors travel is 24 cents a kilometre based on 20 year old fees so you wouldn't break even in terms no. of your diesel um, not that anyone else in the civil service or the government would be getting 24 cents a kilometre no um, but they came back and said, no, there's no remuneration for solicitor's expenses or proprietary works. So your photocopying, your consultations, your travel, none of that's covered. I said, well, like, that's, that's not, I, I don't think that's on. Well, look, in the circumstances, because you don't want to, you don't want to deviate from the real issue. And the real issue is, there's a parole hearing yeah. and there's a client and you want to act in their best interest. Can this be listed as a remote hearing? No. Wow. That, would, that wouldn't be in the interest of justice. Oh, well, that's rather contradictory given the, the legislation that was mm-hmm. brought in during the course of the COVID pandemic, yeah. and th- which facilitated remote hearings, um, so that's the ob- that's the obstacles that you're hitting continuously on a daily on a daily basis. It really takes away from, you know, the real work. And like one other case there recently, we had a we brought a judicial review application for a prisoner, um, a prisoner who was not in our view was not receiving adequate medical treatment, and we subsequently had a doctor. Um, examine him and who raised issues in respect to how the prison service were facilitating medical treatment and in particular the concerns with concussion injuries where they should be scanned they should be brought out to hospital no handing someone a couple of um, p- um, painkillers and sent in the back of the room wasn't suffice it wasn't appropriate and it wasn't aligned with medical back mm-hmm. best practice fell in deaf ears we had to reluctantly issue proceedings brought it to the court which ultimately resolved it then yeah but we, we sought a recommendation from the court under the ad hoc custody issue scheme. And the custody issue scheme is in place essentially to deal with those who are deprived of their liberty okay. um, and to ensure that their interests and their human rights and constitutional rights are not breached. So we got the recommendation from the court for solicitor, junior and senior counsel. And um, I recently got a letter back what you're talking a, a year later when I'm chasing up the fees from the the legal aid board to say no we're not paying you in that we don't believe this falls within the category of the legal aid scheme so that's the ba- the daily battles that you're hitting God. and then there's only so long that any so business can, yeah, can operate like absolutely. that absolutely you can't but chase your tail like and, that and, and this is the, the the issue that I've had with the minister though the goodwill of human rights practitioners has now come to a close yeah. in my view it's insustainable. Mm-hmm. I can't go back to the bank and go, look, would you give me, would you give me a, a bigger, no, overdraft yeah. because um, I have this great case. No, because well, you have no faith if in you, it. No, yeah. if, the, if, if there's no realistic prospect of being paid for the work that you're doing, then you have to reevaluate mm. the work that you're doing and who's ultimately going to lose out then? 
So, Kieran, there's a few test cases that you're involved in. Um, again, your experience of working in both jurisdictions will prove relevant here. Coming from working uh, in Belfast, where over the course of you know, the last load of years, particularly since the signing of the Good Friday, Friday Agreement, there has been so much reform in terms of policing and accountability. Yeah. Um, and witnessing that, now, albeit it has its flaws, um, it has its issues uh, in the north, mm. but it's it's light years ahead of where we're at in the south. Really, um, it, it it really is, and and where cri- where in my view, where any criticism of Angarashir Khanna is viewed as an attack on the state itself. Okay. Um. So, they they put it into perspective. If you're if you're an ordinary citizen, whether it's in New whether it's in Dundalk or whether it's in Dublin or Cork, south of the border. Uh, and you wish to bring a judicial review application, like you don't have access to the same civil legal aid as what you would have in the north. Mm-hmm. So in terms of challenging the state and holding the state to accountability, those mechanisms are not there, and society's mm-hmm. not used to having those mechanisms. Uh, in terms of police and accountability, you know, where you would have the police ombudsman in the north, you wouldn't have anywhere near that in the south. You have GSOC, which is in, you know, in mm-hmm. Connor as as ombudsman, but it's like it's. It's not worth even talking about, and it's. Mm. And I don't say that just as a passing remark. It is absolutely feeble. Um, and what they're doing is they're they're just letting down the most vulnerable people that come into contact with the law that may have a very valid grievance, and they're dealing with an well a supposed watchdog that just lacks any form of independence or any form of impartiality. Uh, and, a, and a total lack of a statutory setting that could with investigative powers, and so there seems to be that we'll just put this veneer of accountability on, yeah. and all these veneers of accountability come. It's always after an inquiry or a tribunal, um, and uh, and then we'll move on to the next crisis. So, coming back to the FOI, that's a that's a case state case, so, um, it all originates from the provisions within the Freedom of Information Act. So if a, if a practitioner or a law student is listening to this podcast and whether they're from Belfast or Brussels or mm-hmm. wherever they are within Europe, they generally can go online and they can go and look for statistics in terms of policing. And one of those statistics will be, say, police stopping searches in respect to vulnerable groups or minority groups. Um, and that those those statistics are not available for Angardashir Corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was noticing... Um, not only a rise, but I was I was deeply concerned with the amount of clients contacting the office in terms of stop and searches, um, and how those stop and searches were being conducted and carried out. Uh, so I made a freedom of information request, and I I was I was concerned with the volume of stop and searches of members of the Irish travelling community in Dundalk, uh, and so also uh, members of the Black community, uh, but also members uh, of Eastern European communities in and around uh, the Blanchardstown Unger uh, district, I think it's the K district, the guards refer to it as, uh, in in Dublin. Mm-hmm. And the reason I thought that those statistics were important was I wanted to show, like, it's clearly there's a profiling here. Yeah. There's clearly been a systematic d- a discriminatory direction from this, your superiors. Um, but how do you establish that without the statistics? Mm-hmm. Uh, and made a freedom of information request like it was just knocked back at the first instance. 
saw a review, sought a review upon that um, decision and outlined the legislation in terms of my view of what the provisions of the Freedom of Information Act were mm-hmm. and made reference to Oireachtas committee meetings. So similar to Hansard min- uh, minutes in the in the UK where we're sort of outlining, like, this was the rationale behind this legislation. Mm-hmm. So these, it's a proportionate that you, you, yeah. you share this and it would have been within the, the spirit of the legislation, but no. Like, wow. Uh, and again, we were left with no alternative but to seek a case straight, straight to the, the High Court. But it's again, but it's a case, <laughs> yeah. and it's a case with significant public importance. It will have. And again, yeah. all pro bono. No, there's no payment in this. No, there's no legal aid provision for it. So you're so in terms of exploring the law, testing the law, holding the state to account, you're really at the you're really you're at the mercy and the goodwill of practitioners. Um, and I don't think I that's right. I don't, I don't think that's right. I'm just shaking my head here in complete disbelief, although obviously I've heard similar issues before, even with guests that have been on this podcast. But it absolutely is. It's incredible that that's where we're at. It really is. Well, well, well just on that particular FOI issue uh, and discriminatory policing, um, I was successful, which to my surprise, with one FOI with, with the guards. And that was, I focused on the training in which members of Angardashir Kana would receive uh, dealing with vulnerable adults, so adults with mental health difficulties mm-hmm. or children, uh, um, and who would be on searches. Okay. So if the guards are searching a particular property, my issue was that the guards, it, there was a trend at that particular time when guards were searching houses, which they, will, they openly knew there was young occupants within the house mm-hmm. and there was vulnerable people within the house. But they went in with semi-automatic rifles, wearing boiler suits, having balaclavas. I said, look, where is your risk assessment? How was this carried out? How was this deemed appropriate? And then cable tags were used on the children. Oh, my goodness. And I sought an FOI to find out, look, can you please tell me and clarify what training? Mm. So that was refused. I sought a review. And only after the review, pretty much, in so many words, came back and said, there is no training. No. So that's where up policing. Um, and policing in Ireland um, at the minute and look it's uh, it just seems to be one issue after the other within the justice portfolio at the minute um, and look I, I certainly have sympathy for the justice minister because yeah. it's not something that's happened overnight these are cultural um, and crises that have been there for many a generation mm. and it's been inherited but things need to change absolutely um, and they, 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 they need to change rapidly because all we're doing is kicking the con down the road yeah. And when you're kicking the con down the road like that, it creates the perfect environment for miscarriages of justice to take place. So we spoke about a few interesting cases that you're working on that demonstrate, I suppose, an air of indifference around policing and responsibilities. One involved uh, dangerous dogs, the dangerous dogs legislation, which is quite relevant given what is happening in the UK at the minute around the bully XL dogs. So it's a judicial review application, Mm. but within that judicial review, we're actually testing the constitutionality of the dangerous dogs legislation in mm. Ireland um, and its compatibility with the European Convention on Human Rights and Bon Reac Naheran. Um, but it's also it also looks at the roles they investigate. Yeah. Um, and w- what I mean by that is, so this is a case where a young vulnerable child had his face mauled a couple of days before Christmas, uh, had to undergo emergency surgery, um, and the mother, rightfully so, complaint to the guards I was getting nowhere I made a complaint to the local authority and again that was getting nowhere 
Um, so I was making representations to the um, to the authorities, and uh, the guards were of the opinion that look, this is an authority matter. This is to be the council. Uh, yeah. So mm. when I say a, a local authority, it's it's what you would say in the council in the mm. north. So Newry Morn Council or Belfast mm. City Council would be the local authority that would have to be dealing with this. They have it would be their role to deal with matters of this nature. When you were liaising with the local authority, they were of the opinion, well, look, this happened in private property, mm. so our provisions don't extend to private property. So we're in this state of limbo. We're going, well, look, look at the injuries. They speak for themselves. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do awesome. about it? The hearing will take place. Um, of that, we have no, we have no yeah. doubt. Now, I'm surprised that the hearing is proceeding in circumstances where the Attorney General has issued guidelines right. on dealing with the interest dogs, which would sort of corroborate what we're arguing. Oh, okay. But but then again, I'm I'm not, I'm not actually I am surprised and I'm not surprised. We're also in a, we're also dealing with legislation in the south in which the the attorney general's office has issued a pamphlet and fifteen principles, which should be adopted by the state if there's any litigation. We're talking about duties of candor, you know, operating with integrity and mm. dealing with things in a cost-effective, efficient manner, um, which would be great. No, I read it and was delighted. Yeah. I was going, uh, and and then I'm involved in a, and I suppose in a in a test case legacy uh, case uh, before the judicial review court in the south. Um, I wrote off then to the to the uh, chief state solicitor's office asking, well, look, in light of the aforementioned, are mm-hmm. we are we going to anticipate some form of discovery, or we're going to yeah. we're going to sit down at the table and discuss this? But like, I'm still waiting on a reply. Just on that, I think yeah. there's an issue with my post. Because I don't get a response to a lot of my letters. There must be something <laughs> there must wrong. Be an issue. You need to phone up on post. Uh, <laughs> um, There's something uh, going on there. It's like it's fair to say. I mean, every day brings something else across your your desk. I'd say it's just a very mixed bag. Well, as, as, as a, as refer to like that. We, look, a lot of our work is throughout um, the twenty six counties of the jurisdiction. Mm. So it's you no, know, we've cases in Galway, we've cases in Cork. Um, but like the majority of it would be in and around the eastern districts, so yeah. from Dublin up to up to Dundalk, and Dundalk is a very, no, it's a, it's a very diverse town. No, and like Dundalk wasn't immune from the troubles. It was not. No, no. it certainly wasn't. No, it was a town that offered mm. sanctuary from the the pilgrims in, in Belfast for for refugees in the twenties and again yeah. in the in the sixties. And, and those 70s. cases are still ongoing, aren't they? Like well, a lot they of are. Like I've I've a case there. Um, br- brought by a client, um, a Dominic McGlinchey, um, and that young man witnessed both his parents being murdered in front of him. Uh, the initially uh, it started with his mother and Dundalk when she was bathing both him and the uh, and his elder brother, um, where she where gunmen kicked in the back door and executed his mother in front of in front of them, in horrendous circumstances. Oh my god. Absolutely horrendous circumstances. Um, and then you fast forward a couple of years later uh, when his father stopped the car, the car that they were travelling in Andrada. Dominic was getting out of the car to go into the, the local sweet shop to get the, the, the tape for the night. You know, back in the day when there was no Netflix and you had to yeah, go in and get your that's right. your, your tape um, and what witnessed his father being gunned down in a, in a phone box. Uh, and you're talking about no victims and survivors of our troubled past. No, absolutely no access to justice. No truth-seeking mechanisms. Like talking about ostracised and 
no, on the left device your own device. Yeah. Um, and these are the, the difficult conversations that not only lawyers but society as a whole and mm. need to have and it comes from the top down and when the government want to bury their head in the sand and, and the Irish government they're great they're great at going to Europe mm. and they're great at going to Washington and pointing the fingers in recent years at London yeah. and, e and even recently in respect to the legacy spill that the the Tory government railroaded through yeah. and with, look, clearly there's a multitude of flaws within that legislation um, but how insincere it is for the Irish government to raise issues with that when they have no access to justice there is no legal within their within, within their own that jurisdiction, jurisdiction. yeah um, which we don't really think about as much no. because we're here talking about the legacy was bill and there was I think it was was it the victims commissioner recently in the north uh, carried out a survey and the outcome of it was that it was like one in ten citizens south of the border fell within the category of a victim of the troubles. No, that's so that's huge. That, that, that's huge like, given that the, yeah. you know, the, the the population is is, is bigger the, than the north. But even in Dundalk there's the there's the Cane project, I think it was it was um, overseen by the University of Ulster. They mm. have it down that there's fifteen unsolved murders in the greater Dundalk area. Wow. No, so unbelievable. No, so look people in Dundalk have suffered similar to what people have at the north of the border yeah. but do not have anywhere near the same avenues of redress or access to truth and justice and that McGlinchey case just like it, it blew me away from the outset because when so I sat horrendous. down with Dominic McGlinchey we decided well look first things first there was an inquest let's write off and we'll get a copy of the papers mm -hmm. we only got a full set of the papers from the corner after a judicial review, which was which dragged over numerous months. My goodness. So in terms of the state acting with integrity, yeah. You know, and you no know, operating within the law, that's that just Laughable. didn't happen. No, ten, twenty yards from my from my office, mm. the loyalists bombed the bar. There were several people killed in it. Though those people haven't got justice to the day. Now injustice comes in all its forms. No justice might necessarily mean prosecutions or convictions, yeah. but people are entitled to truth. Mm -hmm. Um and I think we have to have a very serious conversation and the Irish state need to stand up uh, and be counted for it because it's one thing going up to Belfast and agreeing to the terms of the Good Friday Agreement and every agreement thereafter yeah, right. and and you know, going on the world stage and saying, look, we, we, you know, we operate uh, as co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement. But then when it comes to, when it comes to governing yeah. and it comes to dealing with a legacy in your own jurisdiction, not acting within the, the spirit of the Great Friday Agreement. And that's exactly what I think has happened in the, the in the case of the McGlinchey case, where detectives who are now retired, who are openly confirmed on the record with journalists, I think the, the Sindo ran a piece on it, that the file in the case of Mary McGlinchey had been missing and it was brought to the attention of the Garda Commissioner way back in 2015. Like the McGlinchey and McNeil families, they were, they were never made aware of it until the journalists yeah. phoned them uh, in recent years. That's unbelievable. Like, let's just talk yeah. about the lack of compassion and re-traumatising people. Um, and then again, and I know I keep coming back to the same point, no legal aid for people to bring these type of cases. So someone who has witnessed what they have witnessed and now are seeking the most, I mean, the most basic of answers, uh, answers that should be freely handed out, mm -hmm. um, not only because of the obligations under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, but also because of the impact 
of the EU Victims Directive that the mm. Irish government brought into domestic law in 2015. There's a positive obligation to liaise and engage with families, let them know how the investigative process was carried yeah. out, where they went, did they have any leads, what they're doing. But in this particular case, they've lost the file to his mother. Oh, and no, they've goodness. yet to confirm that. And he has had no choice or alternative but to bring high court legislation, high, high court litigation, which renders him quite vulnerable then to costs. Costs, yeah. No, My so goodness. That is absolutely incredible. So you've had some really interesting articles published primarily around miscarriages of justice and you provide some of your own kind of profound insights into the impact of miscarriages of justice, the societal impact of such occurrences. And one of your articles draws comparisons between very well-known cases. Uh, One refers to the Stephen Avery case. I think that's the the one that the Netflix documentary uh, covered some time ago. Why is it important to you to talk about this issue? Well, that was a piece that I wrote some time ago after Jerry Conlon passed away. That's right, yeah. Um, and Jerry Conlon was a great advocate um, and was very outspoken in, in injustices mm-hmm. in all its forms, which like, which which rendered him as fair game to the red, yeah. to the red rags. Um, but in that particular article, I was discussing the case of the Craig Avon too. Yeah. Um, and I would have been involved... Um, Jerry Conlon asked me to help out with the Craig Avon two case, um, and what we were dis- what I was discussing then in that particular case was all the circumstantial evidence and the issues mm. within the case and how I believed it was a it was an unsafe conviction, um, but also while in my view there was unsafe convictions and that was that was in in uh, in the north at the time. Yeah. No, the same week they had and um, uh, there was a, an attorney that was involved in. The making a murder. That's right. He came he was over. O- he was, didn't over, he? He was yeah. over in Crumlin Road Prison. That's right. And all the you no, know, the great and the good of the legal profession mm. and and the North were all there in their black ties. You no, know, this is horrendous. This is terrible. You no, know, we're you no, know, we're just so glad all them days are gone. Um, and I, I don't think you can ever take your eye off injustice. Yeah. No, I don't think you can sign an agreement, uh, and then no injustice is in the past. Yeah. You have to be very live that injustice can happen and it can happen in different ways in different formats um, because if you get complacent about it no, yeah. innocent people can go to jail absolutely um, and that's and that's something that I think a lot of people you know, have got into that position that well look um, it's 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement no, everything's hunky dory now. And I guess things are much better in terms of the optics, no. Yeah. Um but look at the injustice of the North. Look at the injustice of the island as a whole. Yeah. No, fast inequality. Mm-hmm. No significant statistics in terms of homelessness, of children sleeping on the streets, of the use of food banks. No to such an extent that I, I can't remember growing up in West Belfast that would have had its problems. Yeah. And its social and economic problems in the in the eighties and nineties, and people absolutely dependent on food banks, but that's part and parcel of the day. It now. is, yeah. And it's not it's not only those who are in receipt of social welfare payments. No, you have people yeah. that are working as nurses in the Royal Hospital. No, carrying out no the most difficult of jobs, and uh, busted their guts during the course of a global pandemic, and they're queuing up for a food parcel. I think when no, when we've got to that stage. 
know, things we've we've definitely done something wrong. We have. It's and completely like, broken and down. what do we do in response? And we give them a wee clap. Yeah. Um. So, I suppose answering your question, I I think we have to always be alert to injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in my view, injustice is always there. It's always around us. Yeah. And if we don't speak up and proactively speak up about it, we can quite quickly become complacent. Yeah. Um. And becoming complacent complacent allows injustice to accelerate and injustice when injustice accelerates hatred accelerates and you can see that with some of the cases as well that i've been involved in recently um how people can just you can really see a dark side to people yeah um and i suppose the internet and social media have actually brought those people into the (laughs) into the mainstream we've always had those people about Mm -hmm. um but, now but, but you could ignore them quite yeah. easily. <laughs> but but now they can get a, yeah. they can get into your computer and they can get their message out through all the different That's social right. media outlets. And even I mean, you're looking at the government. I mean, like leading in, I suppose from your answer there, looking at how and we've talked about this at length in this podcast. The UK government, in particular, attack lawyers and you know use derogatory slurs against lawyers. You know, using them as scapegoats. You've already mentioned earlier on just about you know people working in the profession fat cat lawyers, ambulance chasers, all of this. Um, I'm just wondering about that level of abuse. And you've said as well, uh, just from quoting you here, all lawyers and human rights activists must rise above the parapet and make stands against injustices in all their forms, from the destruction of legal aid, which we've spoken about, and the obliteration of the National Health Service to serious miscarriages of justice. So just, I suppose, the question we ask a lot of our guests, based on that, how does activism work within the law or with the law, in your opinion? And how do we, you know, make change? Well, well, I suppose it goes back to the basics of it and being a lawyer. No, mm. and When you're a lawyer, you're acting on your client's instructions to the best of your ability mm-hmm. without fear or favour. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I always, that's the approach that I always take. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's not a popular approach. Um, and that's the thing with a lawyer. You you will be vulnerable at times. Yeah. Um, but look, and I've, I have fallen foul of threats and abuse no. mm. but when it becomes the norm that it's accepted that solicitors are fair game I think that is that is seriously concerning um, and this is an issue that it's, it's raised its head again in a case that I'm involved in in the High Court um, where a mother of a young man who took his own life uh, has brought a case against the Irish Light, which is a, a right-wing mm-hmm. conspiracy theorist outlet. Um, and you know what, look, we live in a democracy. People are entitled to their views, but it should yeah. be done. And look, it should be done on a respectful platform and, and mindful of that message. Um, so there's a balance that has to be reached. But when someone purposely, in my view, and maliciously redistributes an image of that deceased young man and tries to connect it to the COVID pandemic and the mother said, Look, can, you, can you please remove these? So that's and what then, happened. And, and it was right. So that, that's okay. the case of Campbell and O'Doherty mm-hmm. before the High Court. Um, but when the defendant to those proceedings then views the solicitor and the legal team as an extension of the client. Yeah. And, I, and then that's, that's myself in the office is viewed as an extension of the client and are subject to file abuse online, on videos posted online, um, and numerous posts where it's been calling for the the execution. Though you're not an Irish patriot, the sort of the sort of ugliness that you would yeah. you would have associated in recent years with 
politics in America. Mm. And you're seeing that Here? face value yeah. where they're calling for the execution of a solicitor. Wow. Um, and you're coming from a jurisdiction, and even in my lifetime, where solicitors have been attacked, have been hurt, yeah. have been killed. Mm -hmm. um, all because people thought that solicitors not only were an extension of their client, but because of the cases that were involved in, they were fair game. Now, my biggest issue with that and the threats that were sustained and attracted by my office, because look, I have a duty of care, obviously, Mm -hmm. to my office and my yeah, staff, and staff. Um, because the work they do is it's incredibly demanding anyway mm. but they add this to it no it's it's just it's unnecessary yeah um it, it just plainly shouldn't happen mm. um but when you raise issues like this with the law society um and it's right sure we'll get back to you now i was i must say i was very disappointed and incredibly upset and I'm still waiting a, substa uh, a substantive response from them. My goodness! Um, because like we're not talking, we're not talking that long ago, when Pat Nugent no. was assassinated in his home, having his dinner with his, his family, or when Rosemary Nelson mm. was subject to an assassination. No, on her way to work. Like it's, this is the reality of the work we do as human rights lawyers. And if, if there's no protections in place, for lawyers and human rights lawyers. Well, who is going to be protecting those individuals who yeah. are getting their rights deprived or breached? Um, so, look, it's it's a sad state of affairs. Um, I'd, I'd probably say that the law side don't know what to say because they probably yeah, wouldn't be... Now, you could say they wouldn't be used to the same hostilities of what practitioners would have to, to sub be subjected to and to go through in the North. Mm. Um, but you only have to Google search to see some of the abuse that has been directed to solicitors in the South. Yeah. And I, I for one, don't, I don't think it's appropriate. No. I don't think that it's appropriate for solicitors to be viewed as an extension of their clients for yeah. a game or um, that politicians well, feel it's appropriate to do it. Uh, no, and they continue to do it, and, no and matter. The Law Society yeah. in, the, in England have been very focal on They that. have been. I was going to um, say that. They've no. just recently released a statement and, and, about and it. There was a report there recently that it was a uh, reading that was compiled by Justice, the NGO That's in the right, UK, yeah. and they're referring to the GOA de de declaration with mm -hmm. Commonwealth lawyers. And it really is the basics yeah. in terms of the impartiality of the judiciary and solicitors. And no, mm -hmm. it's it's not appropriate yeah. to you know, de attack them in that way. Look, obviously, we're not immune to abuse. We're not immune to making mistakes. No, and I think it's, mm -hmm. I don't, I, I have no difficulty with someone saying, look, um, the manner in which Kieran was asking the questions in court or the litigation. No, I, I don't agree with that. Yeah. But I don't think you can become personal. You're not. You're losing sight of the mm -hmm. case, the message, the challenge, the legalities of it, and you're focusing on the individual. Mm -hmm. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Um, and if you go back to to the time before Pat Finucane was killed, mm -hmm. no, you could see where these things were going. Yeah. The members of Parliament were openly right. abusing. Uh, their parliamentary privilege and putting the mark in people's backs. No, how could you sit back then and go, how the hell did this happen? Of course yeah. it was going to happen. No, the indicators were there to go and do it and then to deny the family access to the truth for, for generations thereafter. So look, I'm not the same person who I was when I started out in the legal profession though. You were you were still, no, obviously you like to think you still have a bit of energy in you mm -hmm. um, but you were full of energy, maybe a bit more naive um, and everything was so exciting. No, you're a bit more yeah. pragmatic now, but you also, because life and the path life takes, takes you on, you have much more responsibilities. Sure. No, you yeah. have a family. 
Um, and that shouldn't be something that comes to your own door. No, it should not. Well, I hope you get some kind of response and the support needed around that. Um, unfortunately, it's happening all too often, as you say, across Ireland, the UK, everywhere. Um, but just um, our final question, I suppose, uh, you've got a huge workload there in front of you and you've given us such really detailed insight into your work. It's been um, really fantastic. What would you say to somebody who wanted to follow in your footsteps and wanted to practice um, in you know your areas of expertise? How would they get into it? Would you recommend it? Oh, I tell them to go, to go and get their head examined. Um, yeah, there's easier ways to make, I knew you'd there's, say there's easier like ways to make a few quid. If I, if I say if you go back in time, I'd be a, a yoga teacher at Connemara. Lovely. Mm. So, yoga as Imagine that would be a lovely... What would you do? You would crack I, I, look, up... I, I say that, look, I say that. Yeah. I have a drive me demanded. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I have a drive every day. And look, when you love your job, it's half the battle. Yeah. Um, though I didn't get into this game to be a millionaire or to make huge money. Obviously, it's nice to make a living. Sure. And it's only appropriate that solicitors re- receive uh, reasonable remuneration. No, I got into this game to help the most, to help the most vulnerable, to help the people that couldn't have themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, yeah, I did get into it with the objective of trying to change the law. And you can't do that with the right representation and with the relevant case. Yeah. And you can't you can't make society a better place. Um, so if, look, whether it's a young person or whether it's someone going back to education and someone mm. came to me and said, look, Karen, I would really like to be uh, a human rights lawyer? Absolutely, I would encourage it. I, I certainly wouldn't uh, talk it down. It's a great job, it's a noble job, and you can get a lot out of it. So I, w- I would encourage it, but it, like, yeah. it's a difficult path. Yeah. It, it comes with its challenges, uh, and it's incredibly demanding at times, mm-hmm. but look, if you're if you're sincere and honest to that and you follow it, though, the rewards you will reap in return, mm-hmm. um, though, it's, it's, it's paramount. Yeah. Look, here on Mulholland, thank you so much oh, for joining like me it. today. Thanks very much. Um, it's been a pleasure. It really Likewise. has. And I wish you all the best. We'll keep an eye on your cases there as well. And if anyone wants to follow, you've got your website, a really great website set up. And I suppose you'll, you know. I'd, I'd say the, uh, the girl that looks after the website and the social media, she'll be delighted to hear that. I've been on Be- it. Because she's, she's, she's probably used to me about <laughs> going on there, about reminding her of the the restraints and constraints yeah. of the solicitor's regulations <laughs> and everything in between. But, um, yeah, look, I suppose law offices have changed dramatically yeah. over the years. Absolutely. And more so since COVID. So mm-hmm. having a social media presence uh-huh. to ensure that rights are known and messages get out there, I think it's, it's, it. it's a very, very no, it's important. important. It really um, is. So, yes, we have, uh, we're on social media. I believe that's at Law Mulholland. And then it's uh, the website's mohawkblog.ie. Great, we'll check that out. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.